This is a podcast from the Gender and Authority Network, supported by the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute. It's a recording of our seminar from February the 22nd, 2017, held at Christchurch College, Oxford. It's roughly the first anniversary of our first network seminar, which was held at the end of Hillary term last year. First, we'll be hearing from Rachel Delman, who's a fourth-year DPhil candidate in history here at Oxford, and working on her thesis with the title Elite Female Constructions of Power and Space in England. 1444 to 1541. She previously completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Nottingham and an MPhil at Emmanuel College, Cambridge. So Rachel, thank you very much and we look forward to hearing your presentation on Perceiving Female Authority, Gendered Iconography in Domestic Space in Late Medieval England. So in the 15th century dream vision, the Assembly of Ladies, a female narrator and her company of women are transported to the all-female court of Lady Loyalty, where they are invited to present their bills to her concerning the wrongdoings done to them by men. Once inside the palace, the women are guided through its many rooms until they finally reach Lady Loyalty's chamber, the walls of which are richly engraved with historical and biblical depictions of women who have been untruly deceived by men. The poet's description of these images anticipates Lady Loyalty's entry into the space, where she ascends to her chair of estate, clad in blue cloth of gold, with a circlet of precious stones around her neck. It is from this chair, and surrounded by these images, that she listens attentively to the women's grievances, bowing to redress their problems and right their concerns. In the Assembly of Ladies, the images of female injustice so prominently displayed in Lady Loyalty's chamber are used to celebrate and validate her role as a dispenser of justice. Yet if the same images were to be found in a male-owned residence, we might conversely read them as validations of female passivity and inferiority. The spatial context of these images thus guides our interpretation of them, inviting us to read them as part of a wider visual and material display of female authority within and through the domestic environment. It is this interrelationship between image, space and female authority which forms the subject of my paper today, in which I will consider the iconography of a single residence presided over by a secular aristocratic woman in 15th century England. So while the study of pre-modern women as makers, commissioners and consumers of visual and material culture has gained considerable momentum in the last four decades, discussions of sight, spectacle and display in the great medieval household have nonetheless remained androcentric in their focus. In their explorations of elite female domestic space, medievalists have focused almost exclusively on the apartments of women in houses under male lordship, arguing that the placement of female living quarters in the most secluded and hardest-to-reach places of the domestic complex, reflected and reinforced women's wider social passivity and exclusion from public influence. Attention to the to iconography within these, the residences of kings and great men has likewise suggested a strict spatial division between the visual representations of male and female bodies. While masculine images, with their emphasis on military prowess and strength, were placed in the highly visible and public areas of the residence, such as the Great Hall. Those of women, with their focus on feminine virtues, such as motherhood and piety, were confined to the more secluded and less visible spaces. Accordingly, there has been a tendency for scholars to discuss gender and visual culture within the great medieval household in terms of binaries, male versus female, active versus passive. Female imagery, then, was afforded a marginal place in the domestic complex and was little more than a tangible marker of women's social inferiority. 
What though can be said of cases where the head of the household was a woman? Though unusual, a number of secular elite women, by virtue of their royal status or widowhood, had the legal and financial means to set up their own domestic establishments. What role did female iconography play in their houses? Where were images of women placed? And how were female bodies represented in such images? My paper today will engage with these questions by focusing on one case study in particular, that of Alice Chaucer and her principal residence at Uelm in Oxfordshire. Paying particular attention to the tapestries in Alice's residence, I will consider how the location of these objects and their rep the representation of female bodies within them might help us to better understand female constructions of authority as they were materially and spatially expressed within a late medieval domestic context. Born in 1404, Alice Chaucer was the only child and heiress of Maud Burkhash and Thomas Chaucer and the granddaughter of the poet Geoffrey Chaucer. Throughout the course of her long life, she married three times, the third and final of these unions being to William de la Pole, the Duke of Suffolk. From this match came her first and only child, a son named John, to whom she gave birth at the age of 38. In the 1440s, just over a decade after their marriage, Alice and William set upon an elaborate building programme at Uelm, where they commissioned an almshouse, a school, and also extensively rebuilt Alice's childhood home, turning it into a substantial and fashionable manor house. The project was a celebration of the couple's successes at the royal court. Alice was a lady-in-waiting and close friend to the Lancastrian queen, Margaret of Anjou, while Suffolk was a favourite of the king. It is commonly thought, however, that Alice was very much the driving force behind this project, and this probably explains why she chose to return to the settlement after William's death in 1450, making it her principal seat, and also, some 25 years later, her final resting place. So the house that Alice came back to during her widowhood was a brick-built structure framed around two courtyards, one of which was enclosed with a moat. Within, the house appears to have been comfortable and spacious, with its many rooms showcasing Alice and William's wealth and status, and also providing ideal settings for the reception of guests. While very little of the house and nothing of its furnishings survive today, information about its design and appearance can be gleaned from an inventory made in 1466, when Alice moved a number of her household furnishings to Uelm from her other main residences in London and East Anglia. The inventory, which gives a room-by-room -room account of part of the residence and its contents, shows that far from being devoid of female imagery, representations of religious, classical and courtly women occurred throughout the residence, occupying some of the most prominent spaces within it. So due to the limitations of time today, I'll focus on two spaces in particular, the household chapel and Alice's great chamber, discussing the female iconography in both rooms. So the inventory tells us that the chapel at Uelm was hung with two sets of tapestries, one series depicting the 15 signs of the doom, um, that is to say the destruction of the earth um, and the final judgment, and another set showing the life of St Anne, the Virgin Mary's mother, in the inventory, these tapestries are listed as having been brought to Uelm from Alice's London residence, suggesting that they only came to form part of the decorative scheme at Uelm during her widowhood. In the early medieval period, St Anne had been a re relatively obscure figure, though during the later Middle Ages, a growing interest in the lineage of Christ and the Virgin Mary saw Anne's cult gain considerable popularity. 
While various versions of her legend were in circulation, it was widely believed that after a long and childless marriage to her first husband, Joachim, the couple eventually conceived a child, the Virgin Mary, upon chastely embracing her at the Golden Gate of Jerusalem. After Joachim's death, Anne reportedly married twice more, with each of these unions producing a single daughter, both of whom were also named Mary. The date of the commission of Alice's and Anne tapestries is unknown, but by the time she returned to Uelm in the mid-15th century, she would have long been familiar with Anne's story and the popularity of her cult. During her marriage to William, Alice had spent a considerable amount of time at the couple's estates and properties in East Anglia, where regional devotion to St Anne was especially strong. Alice was also an active literary patron, and would have undoubtedly come into contact with the widespread sermons, poems and lyrics dedicated to the saint. While it is entirely possible that the St Anne tapestries were made earlier in Alice's lifetime, and were perhaps even commissioned by her and William jointly for their East Anglian residence at Wingfield, the movement of the tapestries to Uelm and their installation there in 1466 encourages a highly biographical and gendered reading of these objects. So beyond her popularity as a patron of East Anglian merchants, Anne was also a central figure in late medieval female devotion. Her story as a woman who had had trouble conceiving a child and who experienced widowhood resonated strongly with women such as Alice, for whom these events were an all-too-familiar part of everyday life. As Gail McMurray Gibson has put it, the St Anne depicted in Middle English texts was not one of Franciscan humility, but a St Anne who, with her multiple husbands and daughters, appears like a rich, pious widow on a 15th-century tomb monument. Accordingly, images of St Anne laid heavy emphasis on her motherhood and her place as part of the holy kinship. Among those frequently depicted are those of her embracing Joachim at the Golden Gate, of her appearing alongside Mary in the Holy Family, and most famously, teaching the Virgin Mary how to read. While these images place strong emphasis on Anne's femininity and motherhood, however, they in no way represent these traits as signs of her inferiority or weakness as a woman. Rather, the primacy of Anne in such images, signalled by her size and her position in her chair of estate, instead represent her female body as the key to her power. Indeed, images of Anne with Christ and the Virgin were understood as a matriarchal alternative to the Trinity, with Anne's position on her chair of estate mirroring the position of God the Father on his throne. Anne is thus presented as the matriarch and the linchpin of the Holy Family, educating and setting an example for her descendants. And sorry, I couldn't resist including Beyonce. <laughs> Medieval women looked to Anne as an intercessory figure who could provide stability and offer an example for their own conduct. The 15th century poets Osborne Bockenham and John Lydgate both wrote their works in praise of St Anne at the request of female patrons. In Bockenham's case, this was a prayer to the saint, which asked her to help the patron Catherine Denston conceive a child. Women also sought to model themselves in Anne's example. Marjorie Kemp, for instance, prayed to Anne asking that she might help her to care for the infant Virgin Mary, while testamentary bequests show that women often bequeathed personal items such as prayer beads, girdles and even wedding rings to parish church statues of the saint upon their deaths. 
The desire among late medieval women to imitate and gain close bodily proximity to Anne has direct implications for how Alice Chaucer might have perceived and understood the images of her within her residence at Guam. For Alice, Anne's life story would have resonated strongly with her own. Both women had experienced difficulty conceiving a child, as well as three periods of widowhood. By this point in her life, Alice was also a grandmother, and Anne, who was praised in her capacity as a grandmother to Christ, would have provided an exemplary and unparalleled role model. The placement of the images of Anne's life in the chapel at UM meant that Alice also would have come into regular contact with them, with the head of a great household expected to spend a large part of their day in the chapel. In her Treasure of the City of Ladies, for example, Christine de Pizon sets out the day of a model princess, stipulating that the lady should rise early to say her prayers in her chapel, attend vespers there in the afternoon, and in the evening say prayers before bed. The chapel was thus a space that the head of household would have known intimately. What's more, in the late medieval residence, the head of household's bedchamber routinely contained a chapel closet, which afforded uninterrupted views onto the chapel below. While the size of Alice's St Anne tapestries and their visibility from the closet are unknown, it is highly likely that Alice gazed upon these images during her devotions. In medieval thought, vision and sight were invested with a far greater degree of corporeality than they are today, with looking upon an image akin to knowing, touching and experiencing the subject. By gazing upon the visual narrative of Anne's life, Alice would have no doubt felt herself sharing and participating in the saint's experiences, with those events in turn framing and shaping the ways in which she thought about her own conduct and the performance of her role as the head of her own household. The chapel, however, was not merely a space only used by Alice. Aside from the members of her household, local and national elites, and occasionally even royalty, would have attended services there. In doing so, they would have had chance to inspect and admire the decorative motifs which proclaimed Alice's wealth and status. The chapel was thus a prime site for elite self-fashioning, where the lord or lady could advertise highly stylized messages regarding their authority and influence to others. The placement of the images of St Anne within the chapel at Uam would have thus made them accessible to others, perhaps even encouraging the onlooker to draw a flattering connection between Anne and Alice. At a point when a woman's reputation was closely bound to her sexual conduct and religious faith, comparisons to Anne, a chaste and pious widow, would have certainly been advantageous for Alice, helping to ensure the maintenance of her reputation as an exemplary head of household. Far from being hidden away or suggesting Alice's female inferiority then, the images of Anne in Alice's residence can instead be read as a highly visible celebration of Anne's power through the events of the female life course, which in turn validated and proclaimed Alice's own authority as a woman at the head of her own domestic establishment. So while the iconography of the chapel celebrated female faith and motherhood, the tapestries of the great chamber depicted an entirely different set of traits and virtues. The room was hung with three sets of tapestries, one showing Hercules' tournament, another displaying ladies-in-waiting, and the final one depicting the locus perfectionis, or place of perfection. At the heart of this room was also a bed, which was hung with a cover covering of Arethia, a queen of the all-female Amazon tribe.
The predominance of female imagery within the room is striking, and the inventory offers us a rare documented example of a thematic selection of tapestries commissioned for a female patron. How then might we understand and interpret these images? One particularly striking aspect of the selection of tapestries is their prominent and repeated display of Amazon women. It has been suggested, for example, that the tapestry of Hercules' tawny either showed his founding of the Olympic Games in the presence of the Amazon queens, or the battle between the Amazons and the Greeks. Why might have Alice chosen to depict um, such an image in her great chamber? Through her reading of Christine de Pizon's Book of City of Ladies, which she owned and had a copy of in her library, Alice would have been well aware of de Pizon's characterisation of the Amazons as models of female strength and good governance. In the book, de Pizon argues that the Amazons displayed the necessary courage, strength and bravery to undertake and accomplish extraordinary deeds which match those achieved by great conquerors and knights. De Pizon concludes that the realm of Amazonia owed its 800 years existence to the good governance and military prowess of its queens, whose successive successes were unmatched by the rulers of any other realm. In light of this, the room's focal point, a bed displaying the Amazon queen Arethia, can be, can be seen to have provided a powerful visual statement of female power and strength. In the City of Ladies, de Pizon praises Arethia in particular as a valiant woman who had conquered many lands. In the work, she describes how when the queen heard of the capture of two of her close female relations by the Greeks, she raised an army and later negotiated a peace treaty with Hercules and Theseus to ensure the women's safe return. In visual depictions, the Amazons were commonly represented wearing a hybrid costume of armour and lavish courtly dress. In this tapestry from the V&A in London, for example, Arethia's daughter, Penthilcelea, is shown wearing chainmail, yet on her head she wears a fashionable steeple headdress with a veil. Images of the Amazons thus celebrated the women's combination of masculine and feminine characteristics. While on the one hand the women conform to an idealised picture of femininity as courtly ladies and intercessors, on the other they exhibited behaviours and carried out tasks that were culturally considered masculine, acting as valiant warriors and ruling over vast estates. The messages of good governance and female strength conveyed through the tapestries of the Amazon women were complemented by the other two in the room, which took ladies-in-waiting and the locus perfectionis as their subject. The first of these was closely related to the events of Alice's own life, as in her earlier years she had been a lady-in-waiting at the royal court. The friendship between Alice and Queen Margaret of Anjou appears to have been particularly strong, and the tapestry was no doubt as much a celebration of female loyalty as it was a proclamation of Alice's illustrious connections to both the English and French royal courts. The appearance, the appearance of the last of these tapestries depicting the locus perfectionis is unknown, although due to the dominance of female iconography elsewhere in the room, it has been suggested that it may have depicted an all-female utopia, such as that imagined by the poet in the Assembly of Ladies. The spatial context of these tapestries, this time in Alice's great chamber, again helps us to explore and understand their significance for their contemporary viewers and users. 
In the late medieval great residence, the great chamber usually formed the central of a suite of three interconnected rooms, being preceded by a waiting chamber and followed by the head of household's personal bedchamber. These apartments were commonly located at first floor level and accessed from the dais end of the great hall. As the rooms most closely associated with the head of household's authority, in most cases they were occupied by a man. Yet when William died in 1450, the chambers at Ewarm instead came to be associated with Alice's authority. Much like Lady Loyalty's chamber in the Assembly of Ladies, the Great Chamber was used for the official reception of guests and petitioners, as a space in which the head of household displayed their hospitality and enacted their role as a regional dispenser of justice. The iconographic display of the Great Chamber was especially important, giving the head of household the opportunity to convey a highly stylized message or messages of their magnificence to their guests. This considered, the female iconography of Alice's great chamber at Yuan becomes all the more significant. Seated on her chair of estate or ceremonial bed, Alice would have appeared at the centre of a rich iconographic spectacle designed to celebrate and proclaim the strengths and virtues of women, and thus glorifying the female figure at the heart of this carefully orchestrated piece of domestic theatre. For a visitor to the space, the appearance of Alice, framed by an image of Aretha in her chain mail and armour, would have had an arresting visual impact, powerfully declaring and validating Alice's role as the figure at the head of her own establishment. So in conclusion then, I began my paper today with the example of Lady Loyalty's chamber, with its walls richly engraved with the images of women wronged by men. Although a literary construction, today I have shown that the all-female court and iconography of Lady Loyalty's residence, though exaggerated, were not entirely divorced from late medieval reality. At UM, female iconography played an central role in the construction of Alice's authority as a woman at the head of her own household. Far from being relegated to the marginal spaces within the domestic complex, Representations of women were celebrated and displayed in some of the most prominent places within Alice's residence. In constructing and displaying her authority to others, Alice drew on a wide-ranging corpus of examples. While on the one hand St Anne provided a model for her status as a pious widow, on the other the Amazon queens with their spears and armour justified her role as the holder of a position usually reserved for men. The variety of images in Alice's residence speaks of the complexities of female authority in pre-modern England. Studies of early modern queenship, for example, have shown that regnant queens were required, as Louise Frodenberg has put it, to gain a purchase on both sexes for the effective performance of their roles. And I would argue that the performance of female authority within the context of the late medieval household was no different with women like Alice also required to gain a purchase on both sexes when enacting their domestic authority. And it was this balance of masculine and feminine elements that was to define Alice's legacy. In her tomb effigy in St Mary's Church at Ewelm, she is shown dressed in the clothes of a widow. With her veil and her rosary beads, she appears indistinguishable from the pious example of St Anne, who once adorned the walls of her chapel. Yet at Alice's feet, there is something unexpected. 
Instead of a dog, the usual symbol of female fidelity, we find a lion, whose presence proclaims her strength and courage, and reminds us that she was Oxfordshire's answer to the Amazon queen, Aretha. Thank you. Now I'll introduce Serena Alessi, who is currently Rome Fellow at the British School at Rome, where she's working on a project entitled Images of Rome in Italian Postcolonial Women Writers. In 2015, she received her PhD in Italian Studies at Royal Holloway, University of London, where she also taught Italian language and culture. Her thesis focused on the adaptation of the myth of Penelope in the Italian literary tradition. In July 2017, she will be the Benno Geiger Fellow at the Fondazione Cini in Venice for a project on Sibylla Araramo's private letters. She's published on the figure of Penelope, on Luigi Malerba, and on Alberto Savigno, and her research interests include contemporary Italian culture, feminist theory, and post-colonial studies. She also contributes to the Rayuno TV programme, Mille e un Libro, or Thousand and One Books, and a literary blog, Critica Letteraria. So we're very glad to welcome Serena, who's joining us from Rome, and she's going to talk to us about rewriting the canon and rethinking the myth. Thanks, David, and thanks everybody to, to be here tonight. Um, okay, so rewriting the canon and rethinking the myth. Um, the question of giving an alternative reading of femininity dominated the critical debate of the second half of the last century, especially after the feminist fights of the 60s. Post-structuralist thinkers such as Lucie de Garay, Hélène Sixou, Julia Cristevan were all arguing with their different works and in various ways that the difference between the sexes should also affect language and the use of symbols as opposite to the patriarchal culture that imposed the masculine identity and language and symbols on the feminine one. What in my opinion is very interesting and what I would like to focus on during this seminar today is that this urge, this urge to break the hold of the dominant masculine language and literary canon often passed through a reuse of the myth. Of course, to investigate all the possible meanings and uses of the word myth is not the task of my talk today. So we agree that when I say myth, I intend the myths of the Western tradition, so the Greek myths and the Homeric characters. My paper today will be divided into two main parts. In the first, I will expand this reflection on the reuse of ancient myths and Western traditional tales to rewrite the literary canon in order to give voice to the two female figures typically uh, stereotyped or forgotten. And in the second, I will use a specific mythical figure, which is Penelope, the wife of Ulysses of the Odyssey, and two literary texts from contemporary Italian literature as examples of two different ways to rewrite a myth. We need to know the writing of the past and know it differently than we have ever known it, not to pass on a tradition, but to break its hold over us. This is what the American poet, scholar and feminist, Adrian Rich, wrote in 1971 in a well-known essay, When We Dead Awaken, writing as revision. This perception of a need for modern interpretation of ancient texts we should not be discarded, but only looked at through a different perspective, is central in Rich's thought, but also in the critical production of other scholars whose works are clearly rooted in Rich's ideas. In 1982, the American poet and scholar Alicia Ostricke 
uh, wrote an article entitled Thieves of Language, Women Poets and Revisionist Myth-Making. According to Ostrike, female revisionist myth-making Sorry, according to Ostrike, female revisionist myth-making is defined by at least three categories. First, an anti-authoritarianism as opposite to patriarchal precepts. A re-evaluation of social, political and philosophical values. The absence of nostalgia for and faith in a mythical past. Ostrike finds that these elements are often contained in literary works based on myth written by women, and in her essay she uses some poems with a mythological content written by American women to prove her thesis. Of course, Ostrike's categories may also be applied to other literatures and other languages, not only to American poetry. For example, Lucia Re, who is um, a professor at UCLA, resumed Ostriker's discourse ten years later and restricted it to, ta- to the Italian case, so she uses Italian poems, in her article Mythical Revisionism, Women Poets and Philosophers in Italy Today. Alicia Ostriker writes that in these poems, so in the poems that she analyzes, the old stories are changed, changed utterly by female knowledge of female experience so that they can longer stand as foundations of collective male fantasy. Instead, they are corrections. They are representations of what women find divine and demonic in themselves. They are retrieved images of what women have collectively and historically suffered. In some cases, they are instructions for survival. The idea of theft when dealing with the female caste for representation and the idea of correcting the masculine ideology of gender are two operations not very dissimilar from what the feminist philosopher Adriana Cavarero proposed in 1990, eight years after Ostriker's article in her book In Spite of Plato, a feminist rewriting of ancient philosophy. In this book, Cavarero uses the word stealing to describe her action towards the feminine figures of the myth. In her introduction, Cavarero explains that traditionally, the symbolic order of Western culture was always represented by masculine figures. Uh, The justification of women or goddesses beside them, so for example Penelope by Ulysses, Hera by Zeus, depends on their male partners. Penelope's rationale is her faithfulness to Ulysses and their waiting. Hera's jealousy and desire for revenge are a consequence of of Zeus' behavior. The identification of modern women in these figures is impossible because they are traditionally hidden behind their men, who are the only subjects of each tale. As Cavarero writes, in the large range of samples available within the tradition, one cannot find a single figure that adequately meets the declared needs of female subjectivity. Indeed, in the Western tradition, female subjectivity is buried under figures of hypermasculine men and by figures of women constructed by men. For an adequate representation of sexual difference, a new symbolic order needs to be created in addition to a new use of the language. However, Cavarero does not need to invent any new figure since excellent examples are already present, even if hidden in Western culture. Cavarero steals her examples from pre-existing texts, recording some feminine experiences canonized by tradition, and then extrapolating from them the symbols needed by women to identify themselves. Cavarero breaks the hold of tradition, as Rich wrote, 
by giving an alternative reading of four feminine figures. Penelope, the maidservant from Thrace, she is a character from Plato's uh, dialogue Titus, Demeter and Diotima. The link between these four characters is represented by Plato's works, since the Greek philosopher names all four women in some of his works, and this is the reason uh, of, the, of Cavarero's title, In Spite of Plato. According to Cavarero, those female figures are seen by Plato and by the following tradition merely as an appendix of masculine thought. Cavarero steals these figures to demonstrate that they, that they can be reshaped as new feminine characters in order to represent sexual diversity adequately. Now, having set this sort of theoretical framework, let's move to some examples taken from literature in order to understand how a mythical figure may change. I will use a specific character from Greek myths and from Homer's Odyssey, Penelope, and two examples taken from Italian literature as sort of cases of, cases, case of, cases of study, sorry. One written by a man and the other by a woman. To this regard, of course, I'm aware that if one considers the experience of feminine writing as a specific female potentiality and ability, as shown by the selection of texts used by Ostriker to demonstrate her discourse, on theft of language and revisionist myth-making, using a text by a man author may be a problematic issue. It may definitely raise some questions such as, are men able to reinvent female characters? Um, can we include men authors in these casts for new symbols? I tend to agree to this regard with Helen Sixou that in her well-known essay, The Laugh of the Medusa, published in 1975, affirms that feminine writing is much more closer to women than to men, but she does not exclude men from this experience. Sixu even traces some, some examples of exceptional men who have been able to write the body, as she says, among which, not unexpectedly maybe, there is James Joyce, who has been able to write of Molly Bloom in, in his Ulysses. Okay, first of all, let me briefly remind you who Penelope is in Homer's Odyssey. She is the wife of the Greek hero Ulysses, king of Ithaca, who is away from home for 20 years. For 10 years he is involved in the Trojan War, and for the rest he is forced to wander across the Mediterranean. During this long absence, the palace of Ithaca is occupied by the suitors, i pretendenti proci, young local aristocrats who try to conquer Penelope and take possession of Ulysses' holdings. Penelope invents a trick to delay giving a response to the suitors' request. She says that she will marry one of them as soon as she finishes weaving a web, which is actually not a web, but a shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes. But she unravels each night what she has woven during the day, in this way postponing the completion of a task. After four years, the suitors discover the trickery, but luckily Ulysses comes, ba comes back home disguised as a beggar and defeats all the suitors. At first, Penelope doesn't recognize in the beggar her husband Ulysses, so she tests him, mentioning a secret concerning the making of the bed known only by the two of them. Ulysses passes her test, so, she, so he reconquers his kingdom and his wife. So it is not difficult to see how the Odyssey's plot is extremely suitable to be reproduced and retold in many ways throughout the centuries. 
and the short summing up also makes clear how easily Penelope has been traditional, traditionally considered as a symbol of faithfulness, chastity, and patient. patience. Sorry. Nevertheless, the 20th century gave birth to a number of subversive Penelopes. The authors of these subversive Penelopes are not always aware of the feminist charge of the Penelope symbol, the one used by Cavarero, for example. But these Penelopes are nonetheless markedly different from the wife that the tradition has canonized as chaste, patient, and nothing more. The cases of study I will now discuss are the novel Ithaca per sempre, Ithaca forever, um, published by Luigi Malerba in 1997, and the poem Variazioni sul tema di Penelope, Variation on the theme of Penelope, by Bianca Tarozzi, published in 1985, um, which is now included in this collection, Il Teatro Vivente. Okay, some indications need to be given before approaching this text. First of all, a similar operation is observable, is observable in many other literary cases in, li in Italian and Western literature, and of course we can take other mythical figures as examples, Arianne, Medea, Cassandra, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm using Penelope basically because I worked on her for my PhD thesis, because Cavarero used her as well to, uh, I mean, for a discourse on feminist, uh, on feminist revisionism, and also because it is a very suitable example to show the, the adaptation of a myth throughout time. Second indication, I'm not commenting on the value of these literary works. Personally speaking, I think that Ithaca Forever is an enjoyable novel. Uh, I would suggest it to anybody who fancies a light reading. Um, it is not Malerba's best work. It is not a masterpiece. It, it is a good book. Variazioni sul tema di Penelope, Variation on the theme of Penelope, is a really good poem, in my opinion. It is not easy to find it, so if you want to read the whole poem, please contact me and I will be very happy to give you the text. Um, third indication, I will not present the two works in the, the, of the year of publication, as Tarotti's poem was published 12 years before Malerba's novel. This doesn't matter too much for my specific analysis today. What I will try to do through a comparative analysis of some extracts from both works is to show how Penelope is used with two different functions by Malerba and Tarotti. It is also important to briefly mention how these two writers are placed in the, in the Italian literary canon. So Luigi Malerba died quite recently, in 2008, and for this reason, if you look into a school or university textbook, you will possibly find only a couple of pages on him, maybe in, the, in a chapter on Neo-Avanguardia neo movement, whose Malerba was part. But no doubt that he was a very significant writer of the 20th century Italian literature. He wrote novels, short stories, screenplays. There is a substantial bibliography on his works, and the Meridiano Malerba is a collection on his novels and short stories, has recently been published. So this leaves no doubt of his being part of the Italian literary tradition. On the contrary, I would say that Bianca Tarozzi, born in 1941 and still alive, is still a voice out of the literary canon. She is a poet and former academic at the University of Venice. She has been defined as one of the most original voices of Italian contemporary poetry. But whoever wants to approach her poetry from a scholarly perspective will soon find that if there is a critical work on her poems, it is certainly a very personal one. Okay, Itaca per sempre, Itaca forever. Is a, novel, is a novel published by Mondadori in 1997. 
It tells the fortune of Ulysses once he lands on the island of Ithaca and disguises himself as a beggar. The writer proposes a dual narration where the voices of Ulysses and Penelope are interwoven and narrate the same events from two dif different perspectives. It's a sort of diary. Ulysses does not reveal himself to Penelope because he wants to be assured first of her fidelity. In contrast to Homer's version, in which Penelope only recognizes Ulysses after he has proved that he remembers the secret of their bed, Malerba's Penelope recognizes him as soon as he enters the palace. She plays along with Ulysses' game of hiding his identity from her and turns it into a contest. This is the innovative part in Malerba's treatment of the classical myth. Penelope pretends not to recognize Ulysses because she wants to punish him for having taken so long to return and especially for not having trusted her enough to reveal his identity to her immediately. It is only at the end of the novel that Penelope finally accepts to recognize Ulysses and the order is restored in the kingdom of Ithaca. Now let's focus on the character of Penelope in particular. Who is Penelope in Malerba's text? First of all, she is a woman intimately hurt by her husband's lies and unable to forgive them lightly. Ulysses' disguise is a naive attempt for the wise Penelope, who calls into question even the well-established epithets associated with her husband's names. Ulysses is famous to be wife, to be astute, uh, but now Penelope commends his vain attempts at disguise, saying how naive the very cunning Ulysses is. Malerba creates an intentionally distorted image of Ulysses through Penelope's questioning his mythical qualities and subverting the standard roles attributed to the, to the couple. In line with this perspective, the reader, the reader of Ithaca per sempre shares this view of this thoughtful Penelope who believes she deserves re revenge. Um, in the selection of texts that I put in my PowerPoint, you can find the Italian version and the English translation. Translation. I will read the original text, but you can find the translation on the PowerPoint. Ho imparato a destreggiarmi anch'io alla maniera di Ulisse e aspetto con lo sguardo fisso all'orizzonte l'ora della vendetta come premio per la mia pazienza. As you can see, the sense of Penelope's patience is here completely subverted. Now our patience is the cause for her, her desire of revenge. Malerba's novel, drawing attention to the figure of Penelope, stresses her features of wisdom, perseverance, and also her ability to lie. She's the most stable liar of all modern Penelopes in Italian literature. The fact that she tells her story in first person is not a guarantee for the reader, nor for Ulysses, who is unable to defend himself from his wife. This strong character even hints at the right for a woman to commit adultery, non capisco con quanta presunzione Ulisse abbia sospettato della mia fedeltà. Lo mi ha forse ripetutamente tradito durante i suoi viaggi? È forse meno doloroso per una donna il tradimento del suo uomo di quanto non sia doloroso per un uomo il tradimento della sua donna? Chi ha stabilito che una donna debba soffrire e perdonare? Penelope also views the women's right to travel exactly the same right as for a man. E perché mai ho pensato, non dovrei fare anch'io qualche bel viaggio? Chiederò a Ulisse di portarmi in Egitto. Mi dicono meraviglie di questo paese e io da quando mi sono sposata non sono mai uscita da Itaca, come da una prigione. Per caso solo gli uomini hanno diritto a viaggiare? 
So here we have a complex character, wise, astute, revengeful, very good at lying, psychologically strong, potential adulterer, longing for travels. Basically, this Penelope is a sort of female version of the original Ulysses. This claiming for the same consideration that is afforded to Ulysses is a very interesting point, in my opinion, because it allows us to create a parallelism, an original one, but still useful for this discourse, in my opinion, which is the following one. The remodeling of the myth of Penelope in Italian literature follows a path similar to that of feminist claims. Women first fought for civil, social, political and sexual rights, claiming their equality with men. And only later, when that equality was reached, women's battle implied a wider cultural elaboration in which they claimed their difference from men in the name of their impossibility to be assimilated to someone who does not have their same sex. I'm not suggesting that there is a chronological consequence between reaching the equality and reaching the awareness of the difference in the adaptation of the myth. I just want to record these two tendencies. So with an awareness similar to the feminist claim for legal, social and sexual parity between women and men, Malerba's Malerba's Penelope is conscious that she is not worth less than Ulysses and with Malerba, Penelope achieves the equality. So with Malerba, Penelope is a major character, the co-protagonist of a novel based on the myth of Ulysses. Now let's move to her interpretation of the myth in which Penelope is the only protagonist. And if Malerba's Penelope wants to travel, let's see what happens if we explore the the potentialities offered by her condition, that of staying at home and never going beyond the threshold of her world. An Italian author who has given a particular sense to this condition is Bianca Tarozzi. Her poem entitled Variazioni sul tema di Penelope, uh, di Penelope, Variations on the Theme of Penelope, was originally published in a journal in 1985, 1985 and then in 1988 and 2007 in two different collections of poems. Uh, Variazioni sul tema di Penelope is a free verse poem in three parts in which the story of Penelope is told by an external narrator. Penelope is a woman of Tarozzi's time. She is a housewife, a writer and an intellectual, a woman with modern economic problems who cannot live only by her pen. She has a family, she has a family to look after and a house to run. Her life is divided between her household duties and her activity of writing. Ulysses comes back, not much changed. He is not interested in Penelope, he has not kept any memory of her, and very soon the home will be too small for him, always in search of new adventure. This time he will not stay in Ithaca forever. Ulysses leaves Ithaca again, while Penelope goes back to a solitary daily routine and to a web, which is, a web is actually her, her writing in Tarozzi's poem. Some critics have viewed Tarozzi's Penelope staying at home and their refusal to challenge the world outside Ithaca, as Ulysses does, as an admittance of failure. Others, for example the aforementioned Cavarero and Monica Farnetti, she's a critic and professor at the University of Sassari, believe that Penelope's remaining of the threshold is a symbol of her achievement of the difference from Ulysses. To better understand this point, let's read the last two stanzas of the poem. I hope it's big enough for you to read. Ora discesa sulla riva, dal mare risuonante, sente voci lontane, antichi naufraghi, 
fantasmi che la vogliono afferrare. Tutte le guerre che non ha perduto né vinto, tutti gli amori che non ha vissuto, il dolore e il furore degli eroi che non le spetta, scempio, dolce urlare del vento dentro l'anima. Ritorna sui suoi passi. L'esperienza del limite, per lei, è l'acqua incollerita della riva. Per Ulisse lo schianto e la fine tremenda contro gli scogli verso la leggenda. Cavarero, in her In Spite of Plato, uses these verses as an exemplification of her theory of Penelope and Ulysses as the different poles of life and death. According to Cavarero, Ulysses wants to defy death by facing the sea and its monsters. He knows that his death will come from the sea, as a prophecy foretold him, and he consciously goes towards death to test his limits. On the other side of the sea, Penelope does not need to go towards the waves, the waves to test her limits, for the limit is the threshold for her. Penelope goes down to the seashore uh, when he, when she, where she is tempted by adventure, legend and death, as they mentioned to faraway voices, ancient shipwrecks, ghosts, wars, loves, show. Yet Penelope decides to stay on her side of the threshold and retraces her steps. She accepts that her limit is the raging water against the shore and decides to keep back from death. War and the masculine thirst for power, to the detriment of the losers, do not concern Penelope and her world. As Cavarero writes, in the Homeric words of mortals, only legend can win of finitude and save humans for eternity, but only the challenge of this finitude can become legend. Not so for Penelope. The dominion of death defies, defines her home, her highland, as a region foreign to both the wars that she has neither lost nor won, and events having nothing to do with her about which she does not know. The title of Monica Farnetti's essay, Non così per Penelope, not so for Penelope, published in 2007, draws on this passage from Cavarero's work, which represents the starting point for Farnetti, to investigate further the reason for feminine abstention for tra from travel. If Western literature is full of women settling their homes, she writes, or women, to, or women committed to welcoming strangers at their inns, as Italian famous Mirandolina, la locandiera, it is because they are the home itself. They are the keepers of the essence of home, the sense of belonging to a place that travelers are continuously searching for around the world. In this way, female non-traveling assumes a new and revolutionary significance. Women are seen as the guardians of identity. They do not dumb themselves or their origins. They do not need to travel because they have never lost their identities. As Farnetti writes, if traveling is a way to find oneself, And one's, and one's origins, city, country, or motherland. And if Penelope and those like her do not travel, might this not be because nothing interferes with their relationship, with their origins, their matrix, their homeland? Because the fact that they are born of the same sex as their mothers affords them at least this protection. Because they are already there at the famous destination which travels alongside the traveler, and they can thus save themselves from the meats and the effort, the glory and the eternal fame, the damnation and the adventure? According to Farnetti, the space assigned to adventure and legend need not, need not be the masculine one of the sea and the elsewhere. 
The home itself can be considered as the place where the woman experiences life and finds root in the adventure of being, as she writes. The experience of the limit for Penelope is the choice to, la- to live and not to die, the ability to guard the treasure of existence. Staying on the threshold means for Penelope to be fully aware of her sexual difference. In this way, non-traveling cannot be seen merely as a boring counterpart to the much more fascinating and dangerous adventures of Ulysses. Going back to Alicia Ostriker's article, subverting Ulysses' values and deciding to stay on the threshold to experience her own difference from a masculine world to which she does not belong, Tarotti's Penelope perfectly fits Ostriker's definition of female revisionist myth-making. Also, with regard to Penelope's theft of language, her anti-authoritarianism is evident not only in her choice of being different from the hero Ulysses, but also in her use of a feminine poetic language. Tarotti's Penelope mixes Italian and English with, hi- with irony, as you can see from, from these, these uh, examples. Um, these verses uh, are part of other stances of variation of the theme of Penelope's that I haven't translated exactly in order for you to understand the mix of Italian and English. Seguire un corso total immersion, insegnare che cosa? It can be done. Lei in ritardo di almeno due millenni sullo know-how. Penelope also uses a familiar register which belittles the Italian literary tradition. Endecasillabo è una muffa, the endecasillable has mold in it, it's rotten according to Penelope, who feels no nostalgia for a mythical past since she had not even expected Ulysses to come home and she finds her own path when he lives again. So, to conclude, very briefly, what I tried to show today was the way the myth can be reused in order to break the hold of, the, of a tradition written by men. I've shown two different ways of retelling the same myth, that of Penelope. The former remodels her meat to talk of women's equality to men, while the latter inserts Penelope in a broader dis- discourse of sexual difference and rewriting of the Odyssey. So Malerba challenges the myth, Tarozzi challenges the myth and the canon. There are many variations of the myth of Penelope, and several Italian authors have played with this myth to create modern and deviant Penelopes who do not conform to chaste women, women of the canon. Such modern rewrites of myth vindicate women who in past texts have suffered from male usurpation. At the same time, they show us why classics endure. Because of their potential of being universal, modernity can reappropriate them for its own concerns, ensuring their long-lasting fame. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our seminar recording. For more information about the Gender and Authority Project, please visit torch.ox.ac.uk forward slash gender and authority. And you can subscribe and download our podcasts from iTunes U or stream them on SoundCloud. Thank you.